Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On June 14, 1940, just one month after the Nazis invaded France, Paris itself was taken. The country and its capital were brutally occupied for more than four years. Aided from the outset by the British and later by the Americans, French General Charles de Gaulle kept up the fight and emboldened an effective citizen resistance movement. This week on the Q&A podcast, we talk with Martin Dugard, author of the new book, Taking Paris. He talks about France during the time of the German occupation and the liberation of Paris by U.S. and French forces in August 1944. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Martin Dugard, your newest book is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. It's the story of the Nazi occupation and allied liberation of France during World War II. Why does this, and in what ways, does this story have resonance for readers today? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, right now we're looking at the fall of Kabul, and it's uh, it's very, very similar to what happened to Paris. You know, people, people in Paris didn't think the Nazis were going to take Paris, even though the uh, they had swept in. Uh, through uh, through eastern France, they were racing across the Low Countries and across northern France, uh, and yet Parisians uh, remained in their, their cafes. They didn't really see any reason to go anywhere. But at the last minute, when it was clear the Nazis were coming, uh, they fled in a max, mass exodus. You know, some uh, eight million people tried to get out of the city at the same time, jamming the roads, and it's the exact same thing we see in Afghanistan right now, right up until the end of the uh, the withdrawal last night. Just to set the stage, what are the dates in which France was occupied by Germany during World War II? So May 10th, 1940 is when the invasion began, and it wasn't for about about another four weeks before uh, it was formally taken by the Nazis, you know, and Hitler himself came in for, to pay a visit. Um, it, but it was remarkable the way that they did, they did it, because they swept across France, they annihilated the French army, they forced the British withdrawal, you know, which led to Dunkirk, um, and it caused... A widespread panic, and it, it led to that thing where Britain stood alone against uh, against the Nazi forces, and it seemed as if the whole world would crumble, and the U.S. was not in a position to step in and help. Uh, and it was a very precarious time. People had seen the war coming. Uh, we had a nine-month period called the Phony War uh, after the invasion of Poland in 1939, but nobody um, really thought that this was, was ever going to happen, that Paris would succumb to the Nazis. And it was um, unthinkable when it finally happened, because, you know, the City of Lights was supposed to be this this uh, bastion of enlightenment and free thinking and, uh, you know, just in pe- people, just an, an open society. And when the Nazis had got into Poland in Warsaw, they, there were mass executions. Uh, there, you know, just, it was terrible. They executed liberals, they executed uh, free thinkers, and, and everybody was scared as they came towards Paris that that was what was going to happen in Paris as well. And the date of the liberation was, so how many years are we talking about in total? Oh, my gosh, 1944, so we're at 77 this year? Yeah, and, for, and the, the actual occupation was about four and a half years altogether. Four years and three months, okay. give or take. Uh, when reading your book, um, I, I was remembering the big debate among historians about the great man theory of history, probably call it great person history of uh, theory today. But uh, and it, it's debated about whether that or forces have more impact on societies. But it's it's impossible not to wonder again what the world would be like today if there had been no Winston Churchill and no Charles de Gaulle. 
What are your thoughts on those two men and their pivotal roles? You know, I went into the to the book really wanting to focus more on the military aspects of it, uh, and I was only going to write about the short period from uh, August 1944 until the, you know, as, as the U.S. kind of came in and George Patton in the Third Army kind of, you know, bared down on Paris. And I found that to write the story properly, I had to go all the way back to 1940 to give the story proper context. And, um, you know, I don't outline my books as I go in. I kind of take it set piece by set piece. And first of all, I found it very necessary to put Churchill in the equation because he was, uh, for a while, they're the savior to the French people. They didn't know whether or not they could they could stand alone, and it was up to him to decide whether or not to continue to reinforce with, with men and aircraft uh, the French cause. Um, and then de Gaulle comes up out of nowhere. He's just this, he's a, a well-known uh, armored warfare theorist, but he's not, he's never really shown exemplary behavior on the battlefield. And he comes up and he becomes the rising star for France. And then boldly, he even leaves his family behind and goes to England um, and gets into this very uh, dysfunctional relationship with Churchill that, you know, ultimately benefited the whole Allied cause. So let's go back to the 1940s as the Nazis are approaching France. Where was Winston Churchill in his career at that point? He had just literally just become the prime minister. And remember, Churchill was in a political wilderness for, you know, two decades. You know, he was he was a man in his 60s who who had warned of warfare for several years. And people thought he was being a hawk and the people thought that he was uh, he was he was kind of just they thought he was out of touch with British society and the British people. Um, but first he came back as the secretary of the Admiralty and then he became prime minister just literally just as the Nazis launched their invasion. And it became a baptism by fire. But he, he, you know, he'd spent so much time uh, in the in the wilderness that the, those he knew exactly what he needed to do, and he uh, was fearless in the way that he spoke to the British people and he, he exhorted the British people. And there were several times, you know, people look back at it now that it was a done deal that Churchill was just going to lead the country through the war. And um, there were, you know, he was cr- widely criticized in Parliament for his uh, for his drinking for his thought process for his decision process um and he almost you know lost that prime minister position several times very early in the war uh, but he he just hung on and and i don't know i some people can take or leave churchill but i i i really began to admire him as i wrote this book yeah to in addition to his leadership style at various points you describe things like his eccentric clothing choices and on his drinking there was one footnote one can't help but uh but stop at that an estimated number of bottles of champagne he drank in his lifetime yeah. 42,000 i mean that's an incomprehensible number of bottles of champagne how did how did he function he, he was well you know quite frankly i, I can't imagine doing that but he was constantly a little bit lubricated he started the day with just a rocks glass of of johnny walker just enough to cover the bottom of the glass and and with a little bit of soda water and he he would kind of sip on that and then at lunch he would open the bottle of paul roger then he would you know go into the night he always took an afternoon nap when he could you know a good two hours and then he and he would work late into the night you know two or three in the morning um always with a cigar, a brandy, some champagne at his side. He was rarely seen to be drunk, but at the same time, he was always, he always has that faint tinge of alcohol in his breath, which I, I you know, I, I can't imagine somebody functioning like that, but they work for him. 
You uh, talked about the the unusual relationship between Churchill and de Gaulle. Uh, France and England, on a larger scale, had a long and checkered history. Why was Churchill willing to come to France's defense? Uh, well, you know, they, we had they were allies, and in in Churchill was extremely torn about pulling British men and uh, aircraft out of France because he felt like he was abandoning uh, these allies. And, and then, you know, after Dunkirk, it became impossible to, to support the idea of staying on the continent. In, you know, even after Dunkirk, people think that Dunkirk was the final withdrawal, but there were still thousands of British troops further along the peninsula that were ultimately taken prisoner. Um, but Churchill, you know, when, when de Gaulle came to, uh, came to London, they didn't know what to do with him at first. You know, the, the war cabinet was, was an upheaval. And Churchill, uh, but he, I think he recognized a kindred spirit. You know, de Gaulle was as impetuous as Churchill could be. And, and the two men never really got along. I mean, they were never bosom buddies, but at the same time, they worked together to, to support a common cause. And I think Churchill at one point was just tired of going it alone. And he needed to know that somebody was laboring to get France up and running again. So when the battle for France begins on May 10th, 1940, uh, Charles de Gaulle was a colonel at that point. The general leading the French army was whom? Oh, oh just gosh, General G Gamelin, as it's called. General. Gamelin, oh, Gamelin, yeah. Boy, you're taking me back in my research. Yeah, Gamelin. And you know, by the way, at the time, Gamelin was considered one of the, the, the uh, most brilliant military minds in the world. And you know, only later did we find out that he had a condition that made him a little bit uh, psychotic. Uh, but he made so, so many bad decisions at the start of the war, and he, he thought it was going to be fought like World War I was fought, and there was going to be some kind of stalemate. And he had been a big hero in World War I for leading a charge outside Paris that uh, repelled the Nazis. And, um, and he just he couldn't understand the, the severity of the situation, and it was left to someone like uh, de Gaulle to actually use modern armored tactics, which, which meant constant movement, constant inter infantry to support for the troops, and instead of just a, a standard set-piece battle, like as if everybody was in a trench someplace. So how was de Gaulle as a colonel able to rise to the prominence that he did in such short order? It's, it was kind of the genius of de, Gaulle, of de Gaulle, because what happened was he was thrown into combat in eastern France. He was basically told to, he was given a small number of troops, a small number of armor, but he was told to to wage war. And he basically was left to his own devices. And then as France fell, he took it upon himself to be the guy who who took his army. Literally, he, he raced from one side of France to the other to try to, to uh, deflect the, the British, the German advance. Um, and he fought alongside the British just out, just just alongside the English Channel. Um, but at some point, I think he realized that he was in charge, and that there was nobody coming to rescue him. He was the hero of the French. He was named a general kind of in the middle of all this, and he was getting his name in the paper, and he was getting his name on the on the radio. And I think, you know, de Gaulle was a man of, of great ego, which, which is no secret to anybody. But I think the more that he assumed power, the more power that he that he took on and the more he got a following from the people. So even when he fled at some point to into uh, Great Britain, uh, he just he had a little bit of moral authority to be able to do what he wanted to do. Once the French border was breached, uh, how long did it take for the Nazis to cross France and why did they avoid Paris at the time when they did it? It, it took them just a matter of days, you know, like within two weeks. But the reason you didn't go straight to Paris is if you look at a map, 
of Paris. Paris, Paris is not a strategically vital place. It's it's more of a of a, a spiritual capital. But all the really important things they had to do, you know, they needed to. The British army and the French army were largely in the north, you know, to the north of Paris. Along, um, I've got a map right here. I wish I could I could pull it up for you. But the bottom line is strategically. Um, it made no sense to go straight to Paris, which is also one of the reasons the Americans initially weren't going to liberate Paris at the end of the war. It was it was basically, if you go into a big city like Paris, you don't just assume command of the city. You have to feed the people. You have to make sure they have heating oil. You have to make sure that uh, the city runs smoothly. And for an army on the move that is bent on conquest, that's a drain on your resources. You don't want to do that until the rest of the country is under control and then you pivot towards Paris, and in literally, they opened the city of Paris. It became an open city, um, and the Nazis just marched right in. Dunkirk occurred at this point. You've referred to it a couple times already. Ultimately, what did Dunkirk mean strategically, and how has it become? What has it become as a metaphor and in, in throughout history? Well, you know, Dunkirk is one of the great retreats. In the fact, you know, what happens is at Dunkirk the the British forces are, are pinned down um, on the sands of Dunkirk, which is basically, you know, they could look across the water and see Great Britain right there. Um, and, you know, along with the British troops, there were 100,000 French troops, and, and the Nazis had them encircled, and they were slowly trying to uh, strangle this this group of people, but they took it for granted that they could never be rescued. You know, the Nazis controlled the skies to the most, to the great extent. Um, and then, you know, for the British to pull off this daring act of getting all of these men out and you know leaving behind tons of, of very vital you know big big guns you know leaving behind tanks leaving behind jeeps but basically just getting the men out uh, some without even their rifles but getting them home to fight again that's what makes Dunkirk so special um, and it, it it you know use the term metaphor it can be seen as a metaphor for hope or renewal or kind of um, you know this de- this desperate struggle, but at the time it was um, this this desperate act where these men couldn't believe that they all thought they were going to be dead or prisoners, and for them to be rescued like that really gave the British people hope at a time that they did not have hope, and it kind of cemented Churchill's legacy at a time when you think about it, if that had failed, and that this took place only three weeks after the Germans had marched into into France, if that had failed, if if the if Dunkirk had resulted in all those pleasure craft that came across the rescue to rescue the men getting destroyed and, and all these men getting slaughtered on the beaches. That would have meant the end of Churchill, obviously, as the prime minister, but also the end of, um, of Britain as a nation. There would have been no one left to defend it, and the Nazis could have literally launched the invasion that they, would, that they later wished they had done at that time. At the successful conclusion of Dunkirk, June 4th, Winston Churchill made his famous address uh, to the nation and to Parliament. We're going to listen to about a minute of it from June 4th, 1940. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, 
this island or large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Martin Dugard, who was Churchill's intended audience for this? Oh, that was straight for Adolf Hitler. He um, he didn't call, he wouldn't call him by name. He just called him that man. And it, it, there's a couple hidden messages there. You know, like I said, the, when Paris was conquered and the, Mar- the Nazis just marched right in, the people of Paris cared so much about their city that they just, they didn't want it destroyed. They didn't want all the, the museums destroyed and the priceless works of art, and, and they wanted everything to be just the same. Uh, but what, what Churchill's saying right there is, if the Nazis try to come in, they're not, London's not going to be like this. They're not going to just roll over for the, for the Germans. Um, and what you see throughout World War II is a, is a public back and forth between Hitler and Churchill, kind of in their, they, they never address each other personally, but they, through their speeches, they antagonize one another. And this, this is Churchill kind of ramping things up, letting everybody know that um, he will defy the Nazis no matter what. And this is a time when he had every reason to, to fear Hitler. Um, I, I love that speech. I mean, if you read it in its entirety, uh, it's, a, it's a just, it's so powerful. You know, when, when Churchill wrote his speeches, he wrote them in little stanzas, you know, more like in the Psalms when you, you, you see three or four lines at a time and, and he wrote them in, in ways that he knew where to emphasize. He knew where to build in applause. And um, he's, it's just such a, a, a powerful um, F.U. to Hitler that it's just it's an amazing speech to read. He also makes reference to the new world. So let's bring Franklin Roosevelt into the equation. Where was he regarding uh, America's position in 1940? Well, you have to remember that that was an election year. So. Uh, Roosevelt was being very, very cagey. He was trying to keep the U.S. out. Um, Churchill was constantly looking to America for help, and he knew he could only win the war with America. And Roosevelt, I, you know, I have a lot of admiration for Roosevelt, but his, um, again, he wanted to get reelected first and foremost. And then the way he played politics with the war at a time when the U.S. could have played a more aggressive role um, is a reflection on the fact that he, we were also a very anti-war country. We had people like Charles Lindbergh, you know, the famous aviator, talking about what a great man Hitler was and how, you know how beautiful the Nazi war machine was. And so, as a nation, we were not in favor of the war. So Roosevelt, until he got reelected, really had to be very cautious about how he managed his relationship with Churchill. Ten days after Churchill's speech, June 14th, the Nazis advanced on Paris. So you reference this, but did the French even attempt to defend their city at that point? No, not at all. Um, the, the French army was was done. I mean, it was uh, there was no there was no reason to defend the city. You know, the the night before they marched in triumphantly, uh, the Germans took time outside the city gates to uh, you know to, to shower and, and shave and and polish their, their, you know, their uniforms and their rifles so they could look their best. Meanwhile, the people of, of Paris were fled. I mean, if, if you see pictures of it, it was just this mass uh, migration of people trying to get 
into the south of France, trying to get away from the war, um, the city of Paris were were refugees. And, you know, people, you know, before they left, they would murder their pets so that their pets wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't go hungry. And, you know, they would close up their houses, hoping it would be there for them someday when they came back. Uh, you know, children were told, you know, you can take one doll, one one toy. It was just one of those things where everybody just ran because all of a sudden this terror about what the Nazis were going to do. The Nazis came in um, acting like, you know, uh, Paris was the new prized possession. They treated Paris like it was this gem, and they weren't going to destroy it. They wanted Paris to remain this place where Hitler could send soldiers on leave, where um, and he he copied. He wanted to make remake Berlin to be better than Paris, but in the meantime, he he wanted to to have hold Paris in his hands. And he personally took a tour of you know early one morning. And he took a tour of Paris, and he he already knew he'd studied. He knew exactly what he was looking at when he was looking at works of art. Um, and then you know he left. He he never came back again during the war. But and the funny thing is, it's not the funny thing, but the people of Paris eventually had to come back. There was no place for them to go in the countryside, and there was no food, and you know people were profiteering from all these people that were fleeing, you know, charging them, you know, farmers charging for a simple glass of water. And so they finally all had to come back, and that's where the occupation really begins. It's not the day that the, that the Nazis marched into the city. It's when the people of Paris come back to their homes and find that they're going to have to endure life under Nazi Germany. The, uh, one of the statistics of that period that you include in the book is that 90,000 children were permanently separated from their parents during the, the, the flight from, from Paris. Yeah. What, what happened to those children? You know, you know, the funny thing about that is, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where these people, you know, a war ensued. There was occupation. I'm assuming these people got taken in by, by other families. But, you know, as a parent, I can't imagine losing a child and never, you know, knowing what, what, what's going to happen to them. And these, these kids just disappeared. I mean, they weren't massacred. They weren't slaughtered. Somehow they made a life and found a way. But that's one of the great untold stories of World War II. One of the characters your readers meet during this period is U.S. Ambassador Bullitt. What was his role when the Nazis advanced on Paris? Well, yeah, I love that guy, by the way. He, he's so cool. Uh, you know, he was, he was a friend of Hemingway. He was a, he was a writer. He was, uh, he'd been an ambassador to Moscow. And just a, a real bon vivant. And he became nominally, you know, after the French government pulled out, you know, as U.S. ambassador to France, he felt like he had a, a long-standing tradition not to evacuate like other nations were doing. We were not, the United States was not at war with Nazi Germany at that time. So he remained in Paris, and he he was the one who actually handed over the city to the Germans after they arrived. Um, but he, he remained as long as he could until he was forced out, he was ordered out by um, by Franklin Roosevelt. And And how is he viewed in history? You know, he's largely forgotten. I mean, you know, what what happened later on, he tried to come back in and work with the French resistance. Um, but he had this great life up until the, the fall of Paris. Then he's he's largely forgotten after that. And he, I hope in the book that he's portrayed as a heroic figure. That was my intent because he, he stood up to the Nazis. He stood by the French, first of all, but he stood up to the Nazis. He, you know, they tried to run... Uh, 
telephone cable through the American embassy and they, they brought soldiers into with machine guns to forcibly, you know, take control of this thing. And he ordered them out. You know, he, he refused to allow any kind of German troops on American property. Uh, and he really, I mean, he could have been in a bad way, but he stood up to them and, and it, but then he's largely forgotten. He, he fell out of favor with, with Roosevelt. And I think that was kind of the beginning of his decline. When was the France Vichy government established and how, how did it function? Uh, the French the Vichy government was, just think of France as being divided in, into a north and a south. And um, the Vichy government basically, at, at the time it was called Unoccupied France, but it was, it was, a, it was led by Marshal Pétain, the great hero of World War I. And when France officially surrendered to, uh, to the Germans, they basically, they acted like they, the French had not surrendered, but that they were, you know, partners in this new alliance to control France. And so the, the Vichy government controlled the southern half of France. Um, the, the Nazis controlled the northern half of France. And, and for a while, people could pretend that the Vichy government was, was not part of Nazi Germany. But then at some point when, you know, they began rounding up Jews and they began... Uh, enforcing Nazi rules, and then, of course, later on, when when the Nazis finally occupied the southern part of, of France, it became quite clear. Quite clear, it was just a, a puppet government um, doing Germany's will. June eighteenth, uh, just a couple of days later, both Churchill and de Gaulle spoke to their nations. This time, we're going to listen to Charles de Gaulle and the message that he sent. I, General de Gaulle. I'm undertaking this national task here in England. I call upon all French servicemen of the land, sea, and air forces. I call upon French engineers and skilled armaments workers who are on British soil or have the means of getting here to come and join me. I call upon the leaders, together with all the soldiers, sailors and airmen of the French land, sea, and air forces, wherever they may now be, to get in touch with me. I call upon all Frenchmen who want to remain free to listen to my voice and follow me. Long live free France in honor and independence. Call upon all Frenchmen who want to remain free to listen to my voice and follow me. What impact did this speech have? Um, first of all, I, gosh, it's so nice to hear that. It's such a powerful speech. Um, and it, it was recorded in central London in broadcast. And it, it, the, the day it was broadcast, not that many Frenchmen were listening. You know, there was no reason for people in France to be listening to the BBC. It was mostly uh, the French who were in Great Britain, who heard the speech, and only later did they rebroadcast it into to find a broad audience. But when you listen to it, it's such a powerful speech. And in, you know, in taking Paris, I really—it's—it's it's not like it's a very famous speech, but at the same time, it's one of those moments in World War II that uh, are largely overlooked because De Gaulle has become—I think De Gaulle himself is overlooked. Um, but you—if you listen to it, you hear the power and the bravado. Yeah, in the confidence of this man speaking to, he's basically assuming control of the French people. He's he's saying, "Follow me. Um, we're going to get it done." 
And, and I, what I love about that is that he had no reason to feel that way. He had he had no money. He had uh, you know his he didn't know where his family was, um, and they ultimately came to to England safely. But he was just this one French guy in a British broadcasting studio in Portland Place, uh, telling the rest the his nation that I'm coming back and I'm going to take I'm going to take care of you and, and just follow me. And somehow, it it worked. It's an amazing speech. And coincidentally, you know, Churchill is speaking down the road uh, in in Parliament at the same time. So you have these two uh, very resonant speeches uh, taking place within hours of each other um, in in the in the same city. So I don't think this ever happened before in history. And so two things, as uh, readers will learn, happened after that speech. One is that he did manage to stand up an army again that was willing to fight for his cause, and it was also the rise of the French resistance. Could you speak about each briefly? Oh, sure. Um, you know, de Gaulle knew he couldn't, he couldn't just go back into France. So he had to, he, he piecemeal assembled an army out of French loyalists in other in French colonies. So you know, Northern Africa, uh, the c- Central Africa, and he, and, you know, uh, the Levant. He went to all these different places and found people who would be loyal to him. And, uh, and but at the same time, you know, France was divided. So very often French forces loyal to de Gaulle would be fighting French forces loyal to the Vichy government. You'd have Frenchmen fighting Frenchmen. And it was one of those things where when de Gaulle, when, you know, history began turning in de Gaulle's way, a lot of the people who fought for the Vichy side were not eager to go fight for the freedom of their own country. Uh, and again, you know, I, I see this comparison with, with Afghanistan. I mean, it's just one of those things where de Gaulle was trying to rally these people to become patriots and do the right thing for the country. And literally half of them didn't want to do that. And then the resistance was an, an originally a separate component. It was based, it was founded by the French themselves within, within Paris and it was just it was it began with students and radicals who were trying to quietly fight uh, the Nazis within Paris and just you know little acts of sabotage, making sure that they uh, that they they passed secrets about the the Nazi uh, troop emplacements back to people in England, and making sure that British flyers who were shot down were somehow smuggled back over the border into Spain and then back into Portugal and back to England. All those little things grew from just people quietly sneaking out at night to help to a full-fledged movement. And it, it finally, you know, after a while, then we get Jean Moulin and then uh, de Gaulle gets involved. He sends Moulin in into the nation to organize all of the resistance into a single force that, that will work basically at his behest to liberate the nation. But they never actually got to that level. But the, the, the cool thing about the resistance that, that a lot of people don't understand is how ordinary these people were. The, these the people in the resistance were not uh, trained guerrilla fighters. They they didn't have you know military. They didn't have military equipment. They didn't have uh, military intelligence. They were just foolish, brave, courageous people who did what they could to subvert the Nazi cause. In uh, in, in doing so, over a long period of time, uh, it led to a groundswell that that really gave them a, more of an authority than people uh, will remember. How dangerous was it to be a member of the resistance? You know, at first, not bad. I mean, I mean, relatively not bad. I mean, you you could be arrested and you could be tortured, but torture early in the war was l- largely confined to just 
being beaten, you know, never punched in the face because they didn't want you to appear in court with bruises. Um, it was only later that the, the, the forms of torture became worse. Um, and then the resistance would be held in some of the, you know, Paris had two main prisons. You could be held in one of those prisons and, you know, tortured to death, or you could literally be taken to a concentration camp, um, or in some cases executed by a firing squad. And as time went on, the executions became more and more. And uh, early in taking Paris, I, I talk about some of the predominant, like like the first the first man to be executed by the Nazis. Nobody in Paris believed that the Nazis would shoot anybody because the Nazis had pretended like, hey, we're your friends, we're your we're conquerors, but we're all in this together. And they woke up on Christmas Eve one day to find that the Nazis had executed uh, a Frenchman for the, the crime of basically defending his friends after some German soldiers tried to uh, harass this woman's, one of their friends, uh, girlfriends, wives, actually. And, and the people of Paris were stunned. And I wrote about it in the book, and it was one of those things where there's a lot of detail that was available for me to, in the official record, to go into, you know, the, the individual's name and his crime and what his execution was like, because the, the Germans were very good at documenting these things. But it, it, what I was admired most was the courage of these people as they would, as they would go to their deaths, because they didn't, they didn't weep, they didn't cringe, they didn't. Uh, give the Nazis any more authority than they needed to. They would, they would sing triumphant songs. They would refuse to reveal the identities of fellow resistance, and ultimately they would be shot. And you know, the the firing squad would be standing ten feet away, so they couldn't miss. I mean, they could literally look into the eyes of the soldiers as this happened, which is one of the reasons they began blindfolding the resistance before the firing squad because the soldiers, the young soldiers, were so unnerved by the looking into the eyes of the person just before they shot him that. It was actually more for the Germans than for the French to put on those blindfolds. But to to be a member of the resistance was to literally ask to do to always have to suspect. Um, you, you couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't you know because anybody could be a sympathizer, anybody could betray you, and uh, and it would and then it would just be a matter of, of rounding you up and and killing you or sending you off to to Auschwitz. Uh, I, I don't want to leave this period without talking about one woman in particular whom you spend a bit of time on. Uh, her name is Virginia Hall. Yeah, I love her. She is fantastic. Um, you know, she was she was a spy, for those who don't know. Um, and she was a female spy. She had one one leg. Um, she she came from a, a moneyed family in, in Maryland. And she could have spent the, the war, she could have gone home. And instead she chose to... Um, at first worked for the British, for the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, and then later for the OSS, the, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor of the CIA. But, I mean, for, for, for a year there, early in the war, she was in Lyon, basically running the entire uh, British spy organization in conjunction with the resistance, you know, at great peril to herself. Um, and, and then she gets out safely, and later in the war, she parachutes back in and does it all over again. I mean, I'm sorry, not parachute. She came in by boat. Um, but she changed her appearance completely because the Nazis were so desperate to find this woman with one leg because she had a very telltale limp. And when she came back the second time, she complete. She went from a be- beautiful young woman. She completely changed her appearance, had her teeth filed down, came back as, as an old uh, cheese-making woman, you know, working in a, a country farm. Um, and instead of, and, you know, she used special makeup. So instead of looking 
30 years old. She looked 60 years old the second time she came back. Um, and the sad thing about that is, I mean, this is a woman who was probably one of the most courageous individuals in World War II. She was one of the most sought after spies um, the Nazis ever looked for. They never caught her. Um, when the war ended, she began working for the CIA and they wouldn't give her any more authority. She became just a bureaucrat, just a desk job. And which to me is really sad. You have this woman with all this uh, this power and this resource and this this ability to think on her feet and you give her a desk job and you know she does that for the rest of her life. December uh, 7th, 1941, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor answers in some ways Winston Churchill's prayers by bringing the United States into the war effort. And the war effort for Europe shifts to North Africa. What was the strategy? Uh, well, first of all, let's get, let's go back. You know, when everybody around the world was traumatized by, you know, Pearl Harbor, but Churchill was ecstatic because he knew that then, in his mind, the war was going to be won. It's very late at night when he got the news, and he um, he immediately tried to get Roosevelt on the phone. He was so thrilled because it meant for sure that the U.S. was going to come into the war. Um, and de Gaulle felt the same way. It, it finally, it wasn't England standing alone. It wasn't the uh, de Gaulle's very small army. It was basically the might of America was going to come into the war. And but so what what began as a back and forth. You know, everybody thinks that D Day which occurred in you know, June 1944, was was kind of, uh, was one of those things that we planned years in advance. But in, in the mind of, of Churchill and de Gaulle, they wanted to go into Europe right away. They wanted to get, you know, use American forces and land in Europe and begin the, the invasion of France. And that just wasn't possible at the time. We, our, the American troops were untrained. We had a very, very modest army. People think of the American army as being enormous, but, it, you know, in 1940, America had the 17th largest army in the world uh, behind Romania. So we were not at all this juggernaut that we would become. So when we finally got men and material to to at least have a presence, you know, to, to establish ourselves in the war, uh, we did it in Northern Africa instead of going straight into France. Northern Africa was controlled by the Nazis nominally. It was also, it was mostly Vichy. So we were, we were basically fighting the French. And then as we set further into northern Africa, further east, that's where we encountered Rommel in, in the desert, Fox. You know, and, then, and Rommel's a big part of the book as well because he, he's pivotal in the invasion of France. He's pivotal in the defense of North Africa trying to stop. But ultimately, he, he can't do it because that's when we introduced George Patton. That's when all of a sudden the American army learns how to fight for the first time. And, and it becomes this, uh, you, you know, the thing about the, the African theater, I'm kind of jumping around here, but it's we think of like El Alamein, but the whole landing at Casablanca and the whole uh, sweep, you know, through Northern Africa is is like the sidelight of the war that that doesn't get the attention it deserves because it was it was largely where um, the U.S. learned to fight. We learned what it was like to be an army, to work with our allies, to um, to to manage the alliance with Churchill and Roosevelt that would ultimately win the war. We have uh, about 20 minutes left in our conversation. One particular battle, Bir Hakim, merits a, a, quite a bit of attention from you. Why was it so important? You, you know, I, I have to admit, going into the book, I had never heard of Bir Hakim. And reading uh, the French, you know, basically when the British were trying to 
trying to hold the line against Rommel's advance. Uh, and I'd always been enchanted by the French Foreign Legion. It, there's a romance to it, the, the whole Beau Jest thing. Um, but at the southern point of the of the German line was this little outpost called Burhakim. It was, you know, way out in the desert. It was kind of like the to the French people, it was the Alamo to the French. It was the place where of that last stand. And so you had all these these troops loyal to de Gaulle. You had all these French foreign legionnaires. There was one woman, and she's the only woman ever to be considered a member of the French foreign legion. And they were completely surrounded by the Germans. They 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 had no reason to hope. I mean, they were drinking water out of radiators just to get a little bit of fluid in their bodies. But they hung on and they hung on and they hung on. And Rommel himself gave the order he was going to come in and take Burhakim. And there's a drama to it. And again, it's another forgotten part of the war, but it captured the world's attention. You have these defenders, these French defenders who were surrounded, who were basically helping the British not capitulate to Rommel. And they had no reason to think that they could defeat Rommel. And yet they hung on. And there's this great moment where all of a sudden Rommel says, tomorrow morning I'm going to come in and I'm going to just, I'm going to kill all of you. And they get away. They sneak out in the middle of the night. And and we're not talking about 10 people or 20 people. We're talking about, you know, thousands of men and, and vehicles and guns get away from Burhakim and uh, live to fight another day. And a lot of them eventually... When Paris was reoccupied in 1944, a lot of the defenders of Burhakim were among those who were marching into Paris. We're going to fast forward through history. I have one more clip to show, and this is January 12, 1943. It's a U.S. Army video from Northern Africa of the Casablanca Conference, which brings all the major players in the effort to defend France and Europe together. In a small seaside hotel at Casablanca, discussions began at once. Their purpose? To design the shape of victory in Africa and beyond. First, a meeting was arranged between Generals de Gaulle and Giraud, who had succeeded Admiral Dalla, assassinated a month earlier. Out of the meeting was to grow the union of the fighting French, who had never lost hope, and the French for whom hope had been reborn. Second, the united command for the new Tunisian campaign was created. The Allied troops in the area were now predominantly British, but by common agreement, General Eisenhower continued in supreme command. As his deputy commanders, three British officers, General Alexander on land, Admiral Cunningham on sea, Air Chief Marshal Tedder in the air. Under them, British, American and French officers and men serving side by side. The whole scheme, a dovetailing of command, unique in military campaigns. Third, we fixed the terms which would end the fighting. Unconditional surrender. There we see uh, Roosevelt and Churchill and uh, General Eisenhower. Uh, and again, we, we can't tell all the history of this important period of the war, but what's important to know about what direction setting this caused? You know, um, you've got to set the scene a little bit, too. So the Casablanca Conference was obviously held on the Atlantic coast, and it was in this big white hotel um, that just kind of juts above the landscape, and there was a, a back area with villas, and it was held in January, so it was bitter cold in Washington. It was bitter cold in London. So, you know, Roosevelt flies there. The first time an American president has taken a, a plane flight of that, you know, duration. And Churchill flies there. You have all these generals there. And everybody agreed that it was like kind of a day camp for these guys because they're getting they're in this warm, balmy place. There was a lot of drinking at night. There was a lot of 
um, a lot of late night discussions about policy. Uh, but at the same time, it was a very, very fruitful, uh, fruitful conference, and it's kind of overlooked by history. It's another one of those little blips that was fun to, fun to research. Um, for instance, Admiral King, you know, of the United States, was completely in favor of shifting the focus of the war to the Pacific. You know, having a Pacific first strategy and in ignoring Europe for the time being. And it was decided not to do that. It was the first time that we decided we're going to focus on Europe first, and we will we'll fight the war in, in, in the Pacific, but that's not our priority yet. We're going to defeat Hitler first. And it also became, this, this was the first time that the British and the Americans really tentatively began working as a team. You know, and General Patton was there behind the scenes, and he was the logistical coordinator of the whole thing. So it gave him a chance to get to know people like Harry Hopkins, you know, Roosevelt's right-hand man, um, in a very casual manner, you know, getting to know how foreign policy was made. And it's it's really great because even though it was very early in the war, this was the meeting where everybody kind of came together and said, here's here's not just how we're going to win, but here's what the, the, war is, the world is going to look like after the war. When, uh, from that point forward, when did the plan for D-Day come together? Oh, it, you know, that was such a, uh, it was such an act of, uh, you know, diplomacy, and it, and it's to me, it's it's kind of a, a sad moment because you know Churchill, first the U- U.S. wants to go in immediately, and Churchill's saying, well, if we're going to go in now, um, Britain's going to be, you know, going to be bearing the brunt of all of it, and you're going to put very few American troops in there. And then the Americans came in and said, well, we're going to, we're going to land on these two peninsulas, you know, in the on the French coast, and you know, tactically it was it was stupid, and so. What begins begins happening? First of all, there was a, this is 1942. All of a sudden, there's talk of a 1943 invasion, and I think the code name was going to be Sledgehammer. And then there and then that kind of got pulled back. And they were even for a while there. Churchill began lobbying even for 1945. He wanted to go in through Italy first. So, but what happens is as the U.S. troops learn how to fight, as U.S. troops land in England uh, en masse to uh, to train and to and bring all you know bring all their equipment with them, and we start we start giving the, the British tanks. Um, all of a sudden, Churchill is no longer the the motivating force in this uh, this relationship. He is no longer the he is no longer the most powerful force. Quietly and confidently, Roosevelt takes charge of you know he doesn't strong arm Churchill, but he makes it known that Churchill is not the dominant partner anymore. And he's not even the top two because all of a sudden Stalin plays a role in the East. And, and it all pivots right there. And, and the only reason we went in in 1944 was because Stalin was basically saying, you need to open up a second front in Europe. And that's why we kind of bent to Stalin's will to make that happen. So uh, D-Day, June 6, 1944, uh, you, you do describe Rommel's defense of the, the coastline and, and how difficult he tried to make it. What was his big strategic mistake? Well, it wasn't his mistake. It was, it was Hitler's mistake. He, wouldn't, he would not give him the armor he needed. You know, Rommel's an, a tank guy. He was an armor guy. Before that, he'd been an, a, an elite infantry fighter. So he believed in the power of, of quick movement, spontaneous movement, and but he was not only he did, was not given the, the 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 tanks he needed to defend the coastline. If there had been Panzer divisions along the coastline able to to pivot and attack the Americans on the beaches or attack the American forces, it would have been a much different outcome. It would have been a much more costly. And, and remember, D-Day is grisly, but it would have been 
much more like the fighting was in in the east with the Soviets, where you just you just have these mass engagements of of men and tanks and people just fighting to the death, um, but parrying and thrusting and you know opening a salient and and uh, you know exploiting the flanks. He didn't have that mobility and that, but and he you know up until the very point where he was pulled out of the war, he was struggling to maintain that Atlantic wall, but he he just couldn't do it. He didn't have the the resources. Once the invasion was successful, you described the great uh, tactical debate about whether or not, in fact, to take Paris. You referenced this earlier. And Eisenhower and de Gaulle were on opposite sides. You said it was a political uh, and philosophical debate versus a tactical one. Why did the decision to take Paris ultimately prevail? It's, um, if there is a poignant moment allowed in a war like this, it's, um, it's de Gaulle's insistence on taking Paris because he knows it is the spiritual capital. Uh, but as we said earlier, there is no reason to take Paris, and especially at this point in the war. You know, forget when the Germans came in in 1940. You know, at that time, Paris was a relatively prosperous city. Uh, by 1944, the the people were eating, you know, leaves off of trees. They they had people were starving, and if the UN went in, if the U.S. went in there, we would have had a moral obligation to to feed them to leave troops behind to, you know, to strengthen the city. It, it just made no tactical sense. So we, could, we could just bypass Paris completely and, and chase the, the German army before they got back into Germany. Um, it, you know, it, and so the story is told in taking Paris about what happens. But basically, de Gaulle is so insistent that he goes to Eisenhower and he says, you need to take Paris. And... And simultaneously, a resistant comes out of Paris and finds General Patton and says the same thing. You know, things are going to get very bad very soon unless you take Paris. They, you know, the Germans were talking about blowing all the bridges. They were talking about the systematic destruction of of every French utility in Paris, including in anything with gasoline was going to be destroyed. And at some point, and it's weird because Eisenhower was very diplomatic, but he was also very tactical. Patton was nothing if not tactical. Both of them, you know, soften. All of a sudden, there's something about Paris. There's something magical. There's something, um, you know, both Patton was a was a French speaker. He, he was very familiar with Paris. Eisenhower had once lived in Paris early in his military career. There was something about Paris that was different than any other city where the entire United States Army says, okay, we're going to, we're going to swing towards Paris. We're, we're going to open up that city. And as you note, the, for all of the successes in World War II, George Patton was immortalized for his uh, sec, his uh, division coming into Paris and liberating the city. Those scenes are classic throughout history. Uh, yeah, it's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, your thoughts on it? Uh, I, well, here's the thing. When you, when you write a book like this, you, you start at the beginning and you, you go... You go with the emotions of the people. So, as I researched it, um, you know, the I, I felt the sadness of the city falling in, in 1940, and I felt the despair as the Jews were were taken away from Paris, you know, and, and sent east on trains, and and in the, the systematic destruction of the city, and you know, debasement by the Nazi army, and you so you you know you feel that you feel that that these people are hanging on, they're they're clinging to hope and you know, Roosevelt is not giving them hope. Roosevelt has no intention of, you know, helping them. He's, they're the last thing in his mind. So when all of a sudden 
the French get a little bit of hope. You know, they hear about D-Day. They start to rise up just a little bit, even though the, the Germans are still in charge in Paris. And you have this moment where, you know, the French come into Paris, then the, then the Americans come into Paris, and we roll down the Champs-Élysées. I mean, just the euphoria. I mean, I, I felt it. I mean, I even as I wrote it, I was like, you, you don't get a smile on your face very often when you're writing a, a history book. But I, I just felt so happy <laughs> for the people of Paris. It's amazing. So we have about six minutes left, and there's so much more rich detail in the book that we'll direct people to. I wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about you, because in the notes on the book, you talk about all the books you've written. This one written during the pandemic was the most unusual to do. Would you talk a little bit about how you did it? Yeah, it was different. You know, um, early, earlier in my career, I was a journalist, and I covered the Tour de France for a number of years. And so I had very detailed notes about places all around France, so I could I could describe those places. I've been to those places, but for the most part, um, writing this book because I couldn't actually go to um, I couldn't actually go to France. It was closed, and and I, I actually had I was supposed to fly to Paris like literally a week after the pandemic was announced and every everything shut down. Um, so everything was, you know, I, you can access a lot of stuff through archives you can you can dig into newspaper archives you can dig into national archives so that that kind of rich detail was was easy to find but i find that when i write a book a large part of the experience is is going to the place and smelling the air and you know getting the lay of the land and being able to describe that so to to accomplish that with this book um it involved a lot of google maps and satellite views and then you get the earth view from google so you can see what you're writing about you can describe it but you, you don't get that actual you are there feeling. Um, and so and the, the hard part was, you know, as you, you point out, uh, as a writer, I like to write, I write history. I want it to be fast. I want it to be a page turning story. But at the same time, it should never be light on facts. So I want as much detail as I can cram onto the page so that everybody feels like that every reader feels like they're there. You know, the story should move fast, but at the same time, it should be you should you should never lose context. You should feel immersed into it. So the hard part was, you know, getting those peripheral details, doing the, doing the legwork as far as, you know, reading the, the biographies or the autobiographies of various people, and you know, seeing their point of view. Um, it really slowed the pace of the work. You know, usually I write about a thousand to 1500 words a day. And with this book, it was 200 a day. I mean, think about it. 200 words is, it's like three paragraphs. I mean, but it was just that constant going down the rabbit hole to find the facts that would make this book really rise up off the page and make the people feel like they're there with the people of Paris. If you count the books you co-authored with Bill O'Reilly, how many books is this for you? Uh, I had th- I'm about 25, I think. You know, I, but I kind of run the gamut. I've done the O'Reilly stuff, and I've done a few uh, uh kind of essay type books. I've done a couple sports books and then I've done about a, another half dozen history books. So it's, it's a bunch. With um, all the books that have been written about World War II over the years, how do you hope that your book will add to the story? Well, you know, there, there are a number of books about, about Paris, about the liberation of Paris and I mean, and by some very, very good scholars. And I'm not going to pretend that my scholarship is, is, going to take anything away from what they've done. But but again, I feel like if you don't write history, 
if I don't write history in a way that people want to keep reading the book, it's the the story is never told. So I try to write this in a way that people again would be immersed into it. And what I bring to it is I'm telling this very epic tale, this 1940 to 1944. It's it's not a sideshow to the war. It's very pivotal to the war, but for some reason, it's ne- this has never been told like this. And I and I I say that knowing that the history of the occupation of Paris, no one's told the whole story of you know from the from the fall of Paris all the way to the liberation and all the you know all the characters. You know we've we've got we've got Patton, we've got Churchill, we've got Roosevelt, we've got the resistance, we've got the French Foreign Legion, all of these people. You know De Gaulle, everybody working in sync. To affect the liberation of Paris, and um, it's a it's a very it's a very rich story. It's got a you know very uh, cinematic landscapes built into it. So to write it and to and to bring it to life, to bring it out in a way that's not just academic history. I'm, I'm not a fan of boring academic history. I want history to be fun. I love history. I want people to to feel the same passionate way about history that I do. And I feel like with this book, we've told taken an old story and told it brand new and in a much bigger, much more exciting fashion. The book is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. Martin Dugar, thank you very much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Enjoyed the conversation. It was fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 